Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hi, my name is Jeremy Lightning, and this is our Thirsty Podcast. I'm here with Zor Ale. He is uh, Superman's paternal uncle. Uh, that is what I'm calling Pastor Michael Zarling today, Zor Ale. Uh, and today we are going to be covering 1 Timothy, the uh, most of the first couple of ch- chapters, 1 through 5. So thanks for calling me Ziggy and then sharing that last week and then sharing that on my Facebook wall today. I listened to the song this morning in bed, and I'm not a David Bowie fan. but Oh, I, like I love that song. Oh. I think that's uh, one of the David Bowie songs that I actually like. But uh, uh, anyway, we're going to be covering First Timothy, and uh, we are looking at this letter that Paul wrote. We call these the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Because um, they are written for all believers of all time, uh, and they are God's word that is intended for everybody. So it's not as though it's only for pastors to read and, and benefit from, but they are giving directions specifically about how pastors should lead a congregation. Or maybe a better way to put it in our Wells terms today uh, is that Timothy was Timothy and Titus were probably what we today would call district presidents. Uh, They were in charge, or maybe circuit pastors, they were in charge of overseeing a whole group of pastors. Paul gives them instructions about how to appoint pastors or or set up a church with its pastor. Um, And so uh, we uh, see that Paul writes... Uh, and introduces himself. That's the way that the ancient New Testament world wrote letters to each other as they started by saying, here is who is writing the letter. I'm going to introduce myself. And he wishes grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord to Timothy, uh, my true child in the faith. I suppose that's a good thought to uh, dwell on for a moment, is that uh, a lot of times we're very quick to point out in Roman Catholicism that uh, they call their priests father. And uh, there is that passage where Jesus says in the Gospels that you only have one father. Uh, But his point is that uh, you shouldn't uh, hold up your father as the ultimate and infallible authority. Um, It is appropriate to consider a pastor as a father figure of the congregation. And then he's writing to Timothy. And who is Timothy? Well, Timothy's mother was Jewish and his father was Greek. Uh, So Timothy had not been circumcised according to Acts chapter 16. But his mother Lois and his, or his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice taught him the Old Testament scriptures. We find that in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And then Paul had Timothy traveling around with him and serving in the public ministry. Uh, He traveled with Paul during much of his second and third missionary journeys. And now Timothy is serving as pastor of a large congregation in Ephesus. Uh, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy after the events of Acts chapter 28. Uh, We might say that this is like his fourth missionary journey. He's been released from prison in Rome. And one thing I learned, too, in studying on this I hadn't picked up on before is that Timothy suffers for the faith. You find that in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 23. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives very soon, he and I will see you. So 
Timothy, not at this time, but later on, it suffers from persecution. And then you, you mentioned the greeting that Pastor Paul has to Pastor Timothy. And you'll have your pastor in the beginning of the sermon have a greeting, grace, mercy, and peace. And the way I explain grace is often God's undeserved love. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, which is different than mercy. And I explain mercy is then mercy is not getting what we do deserve. So again, grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And because of grace and mercy, that grants us peace. In uh, verse 3, there's something that uh, I think we could do well to talk more about, and that is um, oftentimes I'll hear uh, well-intentioned Lutherans uh, and uh, Bible-believing Christians talk about the doctrines of the Bible. And uh, it is true that uh, there are lots of things that the Bible teaches, they're individual things. And this might seem nitpicky of me, but when you look at uh, the word doctrine in the Bible, it's always in the singular, that there's just one doctrine, and that is the good news of Jesus. And, and it has many articles. There are many facets to it. It's like a diamond that you can look at from a lot of different angles, uh, things like that. But uh, whenever the Bible speaks of doctrines as more than one thing, uh, the, there, it's always a bad thing. There are doctrines of demons. Or in verse 3, you see uh, Paul saying, that uh, you may command certain men not to teach any different doctrines. Uh, and, and so that's, that's really kind of the best way to think of it. When, you, when we have the true doctrine, it's just one thing. It's one essence. It's the good news of Jesus. And all the parts of it are really just articles that if you take them out, they ruin that core good news of Jesus. So question, Jeremy, is do you think it's a good idea or a bad idea for pastors in their sermons and Bible studies to be polemical, to be argumentative, to kind of uh, pick out and point out all the things that are wrong in certain church bodies and then name those church bodies? Uh, I've had people that actually discontinued their instruction classes with me because they uh, did not like it that I named names of church bodies. And I said, you know, this is what the Roman Catholics teach, and this is what the Baptists teach. And of course, I was saying wrongly that they teach these things. And that is offensive to people, but um, I don't know, you don't want to be rude about it. But at the same time, you don't just want to shut your mouth to the truth. The reason I ask is I think, you know, people will say, well, that the Wells is against this and against that. And I think maybe a better way for us than as pastors, I'm just putting this out there, is to say, hey, we're for Christ's doctrine. And then just to name the false doctrines. And so I had this on, on a phone call with someone who is going to be taking classes with us here at church and I just laid out the false doctrines, and she said, oh, yeah, that's my church body. And, mm. and I'm just wondering if that might be a better way of saying, instead of us being against this church body or that church body, is say, these are out there, and then let people on their own discover, oh, that might be in this church or that church. That would be a much better way to uh, present it, I think. Just let people come to their own conclusions. 
probably one of the most well-known verses in this chapter, 1 Timothy 1, is uh, where Paul says that I am the worst of sinners. Uh, Verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And uh, the way I've always liked to illustrate that is by a parade. If you made a parade of all the sinners in the world, uh, where would Paul put himself? Uh, He would say, I'm at the head of the parade. I'm the grand marshal of the shame parade. And why is he the worst? Uh, Because only he can truly know his own sinfulness. Uh, He can't judge himself based on other people's sinfulness because he doesn't know what's going on in their mind. But he views himself as the worst because knowing where he had come from, of being a persecutor of Christians, of being Saul of Tarsus from Acts chapter 26. But God showed him mercy. And when when I hear of Paul saying, I am the worst, it always reminds me of the verses of chief of sinners, though I be. This is just the first verse. Chief of sinners, though I be, Jesus shed his blood for me, died that I might live on high, lives that I might never die. As the branches to the vine, I am his and he is mine. And the other three verses in our hymnal are just as powerful. And notice that the hymn writer says, that's me, that each one of us can be Paul. Each one of us sings and says, chief of sinners, though I be. Now, in our current culture, a psychologist would have a field day with Paul, saying, oh, you're not that Paul. You're not that bad, Paul. And, you know, trying to build up his self-esteem. But that's where a psychologist is wrong. It's not about self-esteem. It's about Christ-esteem. It's about putting ourselves down. It's about humbling and humiliating ourselves because of our sinful nature. Then according to our sanctified spirit, uh, dwelling and rejoicing in the grace, mercy, and peace that God gives us through Christ. I used that line from a hymn once with a, a guy that uh, was not very familiar with churchy things. And uh, I found out that uh, sometimes you got to be careful uh, because he thought that when I said chief of sinners, uh, he, he thought I was talking about the leader of an Indian tribe. Uh, but uh, the other part in this chapter that I wanted to just briefly touch on was in verses 19 and 20, where Paul says that he actually handed two blasphemers over to Satan. Uh, and uh, again, we've talked before about excommunication and the use of church discipline and how it is a good and proper and important thing to do. Um, but you also get here the reason behind it. Uh, he says, so that they might, the reason that he excommunicated Hymenaeus and Alexander was so that they might be taught not to blaspheme. So even when it comes to that, there's a loving purpose behind it. And I just wanted to back up to verse 18, where Paul says to Timothy, you may fight the good fight. So Timothy, like the rest of us as Christians, are living in the church militant, that we are fighting. Uh, I just finished teaching my class today on Revelation 12 and 13, that we as Christians are going to be persecuted by the dragon of the devil in chapter 12, and then the dragons or the beasts out of the sea, the the government that persecutes Christians and then the beast out of the earth, which is the apostate church. And they all work in unison to come after us as Christians in the Christian church. We're fighting the good fight because we are part of the church 
militant, the church at war. And then, Jeremy, you're going to be preaching uh, next week on the church triumphant, uh, Saints Triumphant Sunday, that we transfer members. And one of the powerful things that we do in our congregation is every year as we celebrate Saints Triumphant is we pray and thank God for the saints from our congregation. There are five or six this year that God transferred from the church militant to the church triumphant. We thank him for those saints that were with us for those number of years. In chapter 2, there are two major sections that I wanted to talk about. Uh, The first one is uh, the fact that Paul says that uh, we should be offering up all kinds of prayers for our authority figures. Um, We want to live a quiet and peaceful life in godliness and dignity. Uh, So we don't need to be looking for a a fight or rebellion or revolt of any kind. and this is good and God-pleasing when we pray for our authority figures. But uh, Paul goes on to then tie it into uh, this wonderful truth that God our Savior wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Um, so first of all, you see that, uh, or it's second of all, but I want to mention it first, that you are uh, saved not just by God zapping you out of the blue or, or deciding, uh, uh, you know, uh, working some kind of supernatural miracle. You are saved by knowing the truth. So you have the only way you can know it is by hearing it, and the only way you can hear it is by missionaries or pastors speaking it to you. Um, but the key in verse 4 is God wants all people to be saved. And uh, if you know anything about predestination, there are lots of uh, uh, church groups out there that uh, they know about predestination, but they think that God also predestined people to be condemned eternally. And basically what you're saying when you believe in double predestination is that God did not want some to be saved. He He wanted ahead of time and decided to send certain people to hell. Um, and although that makes good logical sense based on predestination, uh, that is not what God says here in his word. He tells us, yes, those who are saved are predestined to salvation, but those who are damned are not lost because God wanted them to be lost. No, God wanted all people to be saved. And it's interesting that I had just studied this, uh, that verse And then uh, earlier this week, while I was sitting at my daughter Belle's soccer practice, my daughter Miriam called, and she had just finished their campus Bible study, and they were going through verse by verse the book of Ephesians. And her pastor talked about predestination, and she had questions about it. And she said, I don't get this, and I don't understand this. I never heard this before. I said, well, who is your confirmation pastor? He did an awful job. Well, she just laughed because it was me. But you don't really talk about it too much in 8th grade or 7th grade catechism class. It's, this is a hard doctrine. So I took about 30 to 40 minutes and explained it to her. And then she was, ah, I still don't get it. And I said, that's okay. And I explained it to her because she's in agricultural engineering, so she's a farmer. I said, it's kind of like when you put hay bales, you know, those 30 to 40 pound rectangle hay bales into the hay mow. You bring in one load at a time and you lay down one layer and then you bring in another level and lay it down and you keep going. I said, it takes time. This is not an easy doctrine. It takes a lot of time. I said, I I don't blame your pastor being new out of the seminary uh, for not being very well, very, very good at explaining this. I wasn't either. 
And I said, I'm not all that great at 25 years in the ministry. Mm-hmm. And I said, Professor Brug, after 50 years in the ministry, I think he's got a handle on it finally. <laughs> Maybe, uh, but it is something that's difficult to wrap your mind around because it doesn't make logical sense to our limited human minds. Uh, how can God be wanting all people to be saved, uh, but the only way to be saved is by him choosing you, and yet there are those who are not chosen. But here's what the problem is. As soon as I said, there are those who are not chosen, now my speech has wandered outside of the way that scripture talks. And uh, when you were talking about your daughter, I was wondering if there's another difficulty that uh, she might have uh, as a woman in the second half of and this we're gonna chapter. Get to that, I, I, before we move on to that, because there's another story with her in, in that part, is uh, he, Paul says about petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. So there are different ways that we can pray there. So petitions are approaching God with our wants and needs. Uh, prayer is kind of an umbrella term for all kinds of prayer. Intercessions, we often have a intercession, an interse- intercessory prayer in the prayer of the church. We're praying specifically for someone who might be grieving or hurting in the hospital. And then Thanksgiving. Uh, so this Sunday in in the prayer of the church, we'll give thanks for someone who has just had uh, a heart defibrillator put in. Okay, and then we pray for those in the government. Uh, I was listening to the speeches given by the new uh, governor and lieutenant governor elect, and they are strong Christian people. So we pray for them because they are not shy in talking about their faith. But then you pray for other leaders, and I, there I think about one of our aldermen here in Racine, and he had told me that uh, he's he's a leader in his church. He said, there's probably three out of our 13 council members in Racine that go to church. So they need our prayers because they're making decisions that are not based on God's will. And so the key there is we want to pray for all of our government leaders, those that are following God's will and for the rest that they start following God's will. What I mentioned before about... Uh, uh, Lydia and liking or not liking the second half of uh, and, First and Miriam, Timothy and Miriam. Too. They're both in college. They're both very involved in their campus ministries. Yeah. Ah, so uh, second half of uh, First Timothy two gives uh, Paul's instructions for women in uh, in worship and in uh, home life and in culture and society, uh, and. These are, of course, going to be very controversial in our our feminist-minded type of society, but I think what's interesting about it is that Paul does not spend a lot of time restricting women. Uh, He really says maybe one sentence of what women cannot or should not do, uh, but then all the rest of it, he is going on and on about all of these ways that women can glorify or serve God. Um, And so I think that's important to realize Paul's not being negative. He's being much more positive than negative. Uh, But I'm going to read these verses for you. And then I want you to explain all of the hard uh, parts to them. So uh, verse 12, or verse uh, 11, actually, a woman should learn in a quiet manner with full submission. That was actually very revolutionary for Paul to say, because so much of Roman society was telling women, you should not get an education. And, and here Paul is saying, I want women to be educated. 
but then he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Instead, she is to continue in a quiet manner. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but it was the woman who was deceived and became a transgressor. But she will be saved while bearing children if they remain in faith and love and sanctification with self-control. So since you're my pastor and these are so difficult, I'd like you to explain them to me. See, this is the problem when you get to go first is you can set me up because I had the questions for you. Uh, yeah, so I, you know, you, you can toss them to me. I'll try to answer. No, I, I'm sure you're going to correct whatever I say wrong. Anyhow, <laughs> is uh, so Paul is saying that that women, especially in the role of the church, should not have teaching authority over men. So in our church body, because we follow scripture, is we have women that are going to be teaching children and other women, but a woman is not permitted to teach. Uh, over men. So, again, bringing up Miriam, because she's very involved in her campus ministry, she's the president of her campus ministry at UW-River Falls. She actually called me a few months ago because her pastor had the audacity to not lead Bible study that, that week because he was going on his honeymoon. and so she, But she wanted to do Bible study. She said, Dad, can I lead the Bible study? And I quoted this verse back to her. I said, no, you can't. She said, why not? And I, and I taught her about this. And I said, you can't have authority over a man. And so I think I actually talked to you, Jeremy, to make sure I was correct on this. And the way we said to her was, here's a Bible study and just do it as a group. Have group discussion so that the men, because the men there aren't spiritual leaders, and so they weren't prepared to be able to teach. And so they just did it in a group discussion so that a woman did not have authority over a man. And I'm going to use that example to illustrate exactly why God wants this for us. Because what did you just say about the young men in that Bible study? That they, were, they weren't ready to lead. And that's kind of true of all men, really. A lot of the people leading the, the revolutionary feminist movement were men. Why do you think that is? It's because they didn't want to have to do a lot of the hard work of leading. Leading is hard work. It, is, it involves decision-making. It involves making yourself unpopular when you have to make a decision and then taking the heat from people if they think it was a bad decision. Or maybe it was a bad decision and you need to take heat for it. Uh, God says, I want the men to do that leading. And if they only ever... Uh, are like the young men described in that Bible study group uh, on campus there, then uh, they're always going to be saying, I want, I want a woman to do this for me. And I explained to Miriam too, I said, what do you think is going to happen if, you allow, if we allow women to do everything? You know, women to be ushers, women to serve on the council, women to serve as elders. What are men in our culture going to do? They're well, the, always going to acquiesce and have the women do it. And notice that's why women today are so exhausted because they're not only doing their God-given role that Paul lays out here, but now men have abdicated their role. And so the women are filling that role too. And the men are like Adam stepping aside. And that's where Paul says, 
you men, you have to step up. So I think this is more about what men need to be doing as leaders. And uh, Paul, you referenced Adam just like Paul did. Uh, That was really what the problem was in the Garden of Eden with the first fall into sin. Uh, Paul says, it was not Adam who was deceived. Um, I I try to point that out for women. I go right to this passage and and I say, you know, at first, how does that sound? Well, it sounds like, oh, Adam wasn't dumb like the woman and got deceived. That's kind of how we in our sinful nature first hear it. But when you look deeper at it, it's saying, Adam was not deceived. In other words, he knew that the fruit would not make them like gods so that they would know good and evil. He knew that the fruit was nothing but danger to them and death. And death. And despite his knowing that, he was not deceived. Despite his better knowledge, uh, he let Eve go ahead when he should have stepped in and been the teacher and said, uh, no, this is not going to help us. Um, the woman actually thought this is going to help us and make us like gods. Um, and, and she was deceived and uh, became a transgressor. That doesn't mean Adam wasn't a transgressor. Uh, it simply means that uh, uh, she was leading the way instead of uh, letting Adam lead the way like God wanted. Um, how would you explain uh, she will be saved while bearing children? Yeah, that's a great verse. So I'll, I'll explain it with a quote from Professor Schutze from his People's Bible. Uh, he comments, She, the woman, need not, however, feel deprived or inferior, inferior as man's helper. Salvation is hers living in the role God had assigned to her. Unique and special in that role is bearing children and the mothering that goes with it. Living according to her God-given role will not in any way deprive her of the salvation that we all have alone through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A Christian woman will find genuine fulfillment as she conducts herself according to God's plan. So that's my answer. So uh, what do you want to say about chapter 3? I'm going to let you go first. Well, uh, we of course have this memory work from uh, the small catechism of the at least what what Martin Luther did when he wrote the small catechism is he he took different parts of the pastoral epistles uh, to put together the part in the table of duties that is the responsibilities of pastors uh, but a large chunk of it was taken from this chapter uh, that an overseer must be above reproach the husband of only one wife temperate self-controlled respectable hospitable able to teach not a drunkard not a violent man but gentle not quarrelsome not a lover of money Uh, he must manage his own family well and uh, see his children obey him with proper respect and uh, then paul offers a little parenthetical statement uh, but he talks about being a recent convert um, what uh, points of that qualification do you want, or all those qualifications do you want to discuss? Well, I wanted to bring this up to you because I got asked this question by the third graders. So I've been reading to our students, and this month I'm reading to our elementary school students of third, fourth, and fifth graders. But instead of reading to the third graders, our teacher, Ms. Bushkoff, had them write like six or seven questions each for me. So it was kind of fun, and one of them asked, Pastor, why did you become a pastor? So I'll ask you, Jeremy, based on this, what Paul's words to Timothy, why did you choose to become a pastor? Uh, I, I don't know if I have a specific qualification in mind, but uh, I think a large part of it was, well, what I always like to say is uh, when I was an immature freshman in, in at Luther Prep in Watertown, 
um, I took piano because if you were in the teacher program, you had to know how to play piano. And then I found out uh, after one year of high school that in the pastor program, they didn't have to take piano. So uh, I dropped that like a bad habit and went into the pastor program. I regret that sincerely uh, to this day. But uh, that was... That you went into the pastor track? That I dropped piano. Oh, okay. Um, uh, But uh, it was, I'd say more so... um, when I started more taking it seriously was in between my junior and senior year of high school. And I went on a a mission trip to Grenada, Project Timothy, it was called. And uh, I always thought since my dad was a pastor that it was kind of a easy out profession. And I didn't really want an easy out. I wanted a challenge. And I found out on that Project Timothy trip that uh, pastoral work uh, ministry work was challenging, and, and that kind of got me excited about going on to study at MLC. Yeah, so for me, as a freshman year, even before freshman year in high school, that Pastor Melberg, who was going to be in my advisor at Kenham Rain Lutheran High School in Jackson, Wisconsin, I remember going to visit him with my mom, and I remember Pastor Melberg saying with me, present, you know, Michael is a really smart guy. And I was thinking, yes, I am. And he said, well, you know, he could be a lawyer or a doctor. I said, yes, I could. And he said, you know, for those professions, you want to have Latin. Uh, so I signed up to the Latin track, not realizing the Latin track was the pastor track. Hmm. And so then, well, you just then go on to Northwestern College because I, was, I had four years of Latin and two years of German. Then you finish Northwestern, might as well go on to the seminary. And then every time when I think, I don't know if I should do this, or I'm going to be good at this, then I go and preach a funeral sermon or go and visit the third graders or I have a baptism or whatever it is. And then go, you know what, and, and try and do, be it humble, but you know what, I'm actually good at this. You know, God has prepared me for this kind of work. Uh, and, and so there, I don't know if, again, those are the qualifications, but it's interesting too, I think of, uh, so we had a couple of our classmates get together for lunch last week, and we were talking about a couple of our classmates that every year at Northwestern College, the dean of students asked them, do not come back. And then the next year, do not come back. Do not come back. And those guys are 25 years in the ministry now. Mm. So it's just interesting that the dean didn't think they were qualified for the ministry, but God had other ideas. That, that is interesting. That's that's kind of a neat story. Whereas whereas then we were also talking about some of the really good guys in our class that we thought they were the cream of the crop. They lasted a year or two. And then for whatever reason, different reasons, they're out of the ministry. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. Uh, I can think of examples myself. Um, I didn't have much more I wanted to discuss in Chapter 3. Did you want to touch on any points? Uh well, I think when it talks about uh, it talks about women here, and uh, it talks about deaconesses. So we don't talk, you don't use that term deacons or deaconesses very often. Uh, a deacon is a servant, and so a deaconess is a female servant. But we have started using that term a little more in our church body. Of a staff minister might be a, a deacon, or a female staff minister might be a deaconess. Uh, but talking about the women. Uh, I wanted to ask you this thing, this question then, Jeremy, is uh, how and 
how and when did you meet Abby, your wife, and then how did she feel about being a pastor's wife? Uh, well, the original meeting was at a summer camp in uh, New Orleans, Minnesota, on the ML on the DMLC campus. Uh, we were both in about sixth grade or maybe fourth grade. I forget. But well, uh, you know, she's going to listen and she's going to correct I, you because she remembers. No, she she. <laughs> She probably won't, okay? Because uh, she, yeah. Anyway, um, but then it was when we were both freshmen at MLC after that DMLC had amalgamated with Northwestern, uh, and we were one of the first classes. Well, within the first four years of amalgamation, we were freshmen on campus together, and we had religion class together. She sat behind me, and we each were dating other people at the time that were not at MLC. Uh, just different uh, high school relationships that had carried over. And um, it, it was kind of funny because I'm, I'm sure we were, you know, clearly we were uh, considered each other attractive, but uh, we're unavailable. And uh, then junior year we became available. But it was while we were dating those other people freshman year, she said, hey, did you know I have this picture of us from uh, when we were in, you know, fifth grade at that uh, summer camp on the DMLC campus. And sure enough, we had both gone to the same summer camp, and now we were classmates in college. There you go. Uh, as far as how she feels about being a pastor's wife, um, she she likes to serve and, and help, and, and she loves the life of the church. And so um, I think it suits her well. Yeah. And the reason I ask that is because... Uh, being on the district mission board and being the chairman and then working with our missionaries is understanding that when we have a uh, a missionary and maybe it's a brand new missionary, we're calling that wife almost as much as we're calling the husband, that she needs to be a partner with him, that it doesn't have to be that way all the time in the ministry. I think my wife, Shelly, enjoys my ministry here because she doesn't have to be a choir director or play the piano or be a Sunday school teacher. Any of those things you might think a pastor's wife has to do. Uh, and she reminds me too, and she reminded me of this when we first got married. I married you. I didn't marry you as a pastor. Hmm. You know? And so I remember that too is my first job. It Like Paul says, I have to be able to manage my own household. I am first a husband, then I'm a father, then I'm a pastor, and just prioritize my life that way. But I, I bring it up here too because that the wife is so vital to any husband, but the wife is a vital uh, participant in the ministry. Uh, you know, if she is involved in that young pastor's ministry in a mission church, it can go really well. If she's holding back and doesn't want to be involved, then they can really hurt that young man's ministry. And so I, I just bring it up here because uh, the two are so intertwined in making a, you know, a good team. Um, in chapter four, there are a, a bunch of uh, predictions that Paul makes uh, about people falling away from the faith. They will devote themselves to uh, deceitful spirits. And there you've got what I mentioned at the beginning of the book about doctrines of demons. Uh, when the New Testament talks about more than one doctrine, it's usually, or it's always a bad thing. It's exclusively a bad thing. Um, there's only one doctrine, the good news of Jesus, and then there are many articles of doctrine. Um, 
But uh, the, the doctrines of demons include uh, forbidding people to get married and ordering them to uh, abstain from certain kinds of food. And uh, whenever I go through that with people in instruction class, at least when I was in the parish, uh, again, without naming names, uh, a lot of people would just voluntarily say, oh, that sounds like the Catholics. Hmm. That sounds like a Roman Catholic priest or uh, uh, forbidding people to eat meat on Fridays, things like that. Um, and although I, I do agree with Paul that there are certain foods that are evil, you know, like cauliflower and broccoli, turnips and beets. Uh, Paul is it's not saying that. Oh, okay. That, he, was, he, that was me. He says this is the people who are, have their consciences seared that are saying that. Uh, but uh, no, it, it, nothing is to be rejected. Well, there you go. Cauliflower and broccoli is not to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Yeah, I'm I'm a little more sanctified because I give away my cauliflower and broccoli. You you are give you are giving yes. giving spirit. Um, but uh, well, I suppose if you can't receive it with thanksgiving, then it doesn't have to be received. There you so. Go. Um, uh, yeah, you can take it from there. <laughs> yeah, and so in verses 4 through 7, Paul lays out the qualities of a good minister, uh, pointing out errors, helping people keep away from them, avoiding fruitful discussions, fruitless discussions and arguments that are based on myths and folk wisdom. He says, training in godliness, which means growing in knowledge, faith, and godly living. Uh, and and there I've I, I taken notes down that you know, pastors can lead a very sedentary life. There's a lot of sitting at the desk while studying and writing, sitting to teach a class, sitting in the nursing homes, visiting with shut-ins, etc. So I think what Paul is talking about here is good for us as pastors to exercise our bodies. Uh, that's why I walk and hike, run a little bit. But pastors also need to exercise their minds. And not just always in Scripture is... You know, I read fiction, I listen to podcasts, watch sports, have hobbies that are different than the ministry. And then because that helps exercise your mind and then you need to exercise your spirit as well, your, your mental things and getting involved with other people. And for pastors and teachers, uh, you know, to, to be able to talk to other people pastors and teachers to lay out things because we can't always talk to our own members. You know, Jeremy and I as pastors aren't always going to talk to our own wives and our children about things. So then you have to hold all that in. So it's good for us to have each other and other brothers and sisters in the ministry who can share these things with. So physical, mental, spiritual health to keep us healthy in the ministry. I wonder when you say uh, that you like to read fiction, if what you mean is uh, graphic novels. Or, or as some of us would call them, comic books. I have uh, spent some good time reading graphic novels, yes. But there are other novels that I'll read too, and I think those are good to read. I'm re reading a lot of uh, history books now with the book that I'm writing. And, and I think it's good for pastors to do that because now you have, you know, I've read Sherlock Holmes, Mark Twain. I'm not big into poetry or things like that, but it helps with your vocabulary. It helps with your... Uh, illustrations and just being able to be able to talk about something other than church stuff. I, I remember going to a meeting a while ago with pastors and I talked to a one pastor. I said, these guys, meaning the other pastors, they, they can't shut it off. Mm -hmm. They have to talk about church stuff. 
and and that's good, but it's good if you can just you know I talk to others about you know their kids about hiking, you know, and, and those kind of things is being able to put a wall up and let's say you know that sure stuff. Let's let's set that aside. Let's talk about some other things for a while. There there are many parts to a, every human being's life, not not just the uh, the the study of religion. Um, so uh, I just had to make a comment quickly on verse twelve because uh, at the graduation ceremony, well, you you had a daughter who graduated from Shoreland this past. Uh, May or was it June? Whenever it was, last spring, mm-hmm. the, uh, high school graduation, the ceremony. They have kind of a nice custom. I thought of the each student, each graduate picks a verse. That then uh, there's an administrator or faculty member that reads the verse while the student is walking across the stage to receive his or her diploma. And uh, I, I think that the major there was. I don't know if it was a majority, but. There were a whole bunch of them that all picked the same verse, mm. and it was this one, First Timothy 4, verse 12, let no one look down on your youth. <laughs> or let, the other translation would be, let no one look down on you because you are young. Uh, and while that is true, I mean, first of all, you have to remember Paul is saying this to Timothy as a pastor, that people shouldn't look down on their pastor just because he's a young pastor. And the other thing is, Timothy was probably at least close to, if not past, the age of 40. And and he still, in that culture, would have uh, felt and, and maybe been looked upon as a young man. Um, and the point was that uh, Paul said, you shouldn't let people disrespect you just because you're young. And even more importantly, I think, is Paul is not saying, yeah, let's let's just throw out all the old folks and forget about their wisdom and let's just find out what the younger people have to say. Actually, when you read the rest of the verse, he's telling Timothy, don't give anyone a reason to look down on you. What you should really be doing is commanding respect, not by just saying, I'm young and therefore you should listen to me. He's saying, uh, instead, be an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity. Uh, in other words, that you are acting so mature that people treat you like you are more mature. Um, And that's really the spirit behind what Paul is saying here. And then he continues in the next verse, until I come, devote yourself to the reading of scripture, to encouraging and to teaching. So listeners, think about ways that you can encourage your pastor to be in God's word. And, And I think in my first year in the ministry, when I was that young pastor in chapter 12, uh, I was on a conference with one of the leaders in the church, and he he made a question of what I was doing during the day, and I said, well, I like to read a ch- read through at, uh, an hour of scripture and then the people's Bible teachings at the time. Uh, you know, and he said, oh, I wish I got paid just to read. And that was kind of a smart aleck answer. But I've remembered it now 25 years later. Uh, so it kind of stung. I wish I got paid to read. Well, now, you know, I would tell people that story and say, you kind of do pay me to read. That's what, you, that's what you do is you don't want a pastor to remain static. And so we want to allow the pastor time to be in God's word. And there, I put in about five hours each week preparing for this podcast but it's well worth it because by the end of the podcast, by the end of December, I will have read along with you, Jeremy, 34 
of the 66 books of the Bible and 34 books in depth for my own knowledge and enough to be able to share with everyone else. And, and I think that's something we need to be able to give to all of our pastors. In closing uh, chapter four, I just wanted to point out one more time, and this sort of popped out at me last minute here. Uh, I appreciate getting to read through the EHV that uh, you give me every time we record this podcast, uh, because verse 16 reinforces that point I've been making about the whole book. Pay close attention to yourself and to the doctrine. Uh, there's just one doctrine. It's not doctrines. Uh, there's just one doctrine, the good news of Jesus, and then there are articles of it. Um, I'm going to freely admit that First uh, Timothy 5 is kind of a tough nut for me to crack. Um, so I, I would love it if you would uh, take the lead with the, the notes that you've jotted down or printed sure. off and uh, where do you want to dis- what do you want to discuss there yeah so he begins by do not rebu- rebuke an older man harshly but encourage him as a father younger men as brothers older women as mothers uh, younger women as sisters with all purity so uh, you know Paul is writing to a younger pastor and a young pastor often has a difficult time in being a pastor to older long time members of congregations he has uh, special challenges. You know, those members, if they're h- hard nuts to crack, they can, they will actually say this to pastors. Well, I'll outlast you. You know, I'll be here long after you're gone and I'll be here for the next guy. So what Paul is saying is uh, he should treat older men and women as fathers and mothers, especially when he has to rebuke or correct them. And he's not to treat young men as challengers to his authority, but to treat them as brothers. And when he's serving younger women, he needs to act in purity, avoiding sexual temptations. So that's how I would cover the first couple of verses. You just reminded me of uh, an experience that I had as a young pastor that, uh, that there was a, a choir rehearsal going on and the individual involved has long since departed and gone on to glory. Uh, He was fairly old when I first met him, a German immigrant, and there were some teenage boys in the choir, and uh, they would like to joke around with the older guy, and the older guy liked to joke around back with them. And uh, all of a sudden, I heard him uh, drop a four-letter word in choir practice, the older guy. And, uh, and And I looked over at them, uh, and then, while the other choir, well, the rest of the choir was rehearsing something else, I, I had to, I pulled all three of them, the two teenagers and the old guy, into the sacristy, and and I said, "You can't talk that way, and you're setting a bad example for these two." Um, now, as I'm looking back at that, I don't know how I could have handled it differently or what I could have done differently, but uh, it would have helped to, for me to probably have these words in my mind uh, to to rebuke an older man with gentleness and respect, because I was kind of a little bit treating him like the two teenagers he was joking around with. Mm. Uh, but uh, he probably, maybe he needed that. I don't know. Yeah, and then it goes on talking about widows. And so the what was going on here in the Christian church is that, you know, widows in other cultures, they're just kind of on their own, I'm thinking. But God had set up in the Old Testament that God's people were to take care of widows. And now that continues in the Christian church. And so if they're a widow uh, that has children or grandchildren, Paul says you need to provide for your family, take care of them. 
But if they don't have family, then he says in verses 9 and following that there's a list that uh, the Christian church has a list of these widows and then they're taking care of them. And if they're 60 and over, then they're on this list because these are the days before Social Security, pensions, life insurance policies, and so on. There's no government support to take care of them. And so the church takes care of them. And that's probably one of the issues we have in our government today here in America is the government is taking on the role that we would have, and I think God lays out for us as Christians, and we let them do that. But then it talks about women who are younger to not be put on the list. Uh, or they, He says, don't put yourself on the list because you're making a vow. I'm going to be on this list because you might get remarried, and then you're going to break the vow. So make sure what you're doing. I, I wonder if that's like God's uh, stop, the Holy Spirit's stopgap against people abusing a welfare system. Um, yeah, I don't have much else to say about chapter 5 other than uh, the verse uh, in verse 17, mm-hmm. which uh, is also in the small catechism. This is the responsibility that we owe to our pastors and teachers. Uh, Luther quotes it, and Paul wrote by inspiration, the elders who lead well should be considered worthy of double honor, especially the ones who work hard in the word and doctrine. Um, So this is saying that uh, it is appropriate for us not just to say, thank you, pastor, for preaching sermons and teaching Bible classes and, and shepherding our flock. We appreciate you verbally, but actually to say, uh, we are going to show you appreciation also by giving you of our wealth, by, by giving you a paycheck. Yeah, and one of the pastors that had been holding our call uh, to be my associate here at Water of Life texted me and said, is this salary correct? Uh, and I said, oh, no. And he goes, uh, he said, well, I'm guessing that Water of Life takes very good care of its called workers. And I said, well, let me check with my wife because I don't know about finances. I have no idea what the church pays me. And I, I asked her because she was there in the room and she said, yeah, they take very good care of us. And so that was good to, to know from this pastor. I don't know what his church pays him. I'm not sure what uh, was all in the benefits of what we're offering to a pastor. But uh, what I'm trying to encourage our council and our, also our leaders in our school is let's make the salary and benefits, the housing, all of that just a little bit higher than you would get anywhere else in most other churches. So that if they're here, they have to take a pay cut to go somewhere else. So we honor these called workers and we want them to stay here. Uh, and so that, that's a, a really uh, good thing. And uh, I just celebrated in our, with our congregation my 25th year in the ministry. And I thought the church did a great job uh, thanking me with a meal and gifts and so forth. And I told them that it's very hard for me to leave a congregation. I've been here 17 years. And I said that it's hard for me to imagine a church and a pastor where the gifts of both people and pastor fit so well together. And I think that fits with this here. At the end of the chapter, uh, Paul gives some very specific directions to Timothy. He says, stop drinking just water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent sicknesses. So there he's saying, don't drink the water, drink wine. In that the water was often unsafe to drink in the ancient world. And wine could serve as a, uh, as a disinfectant. So you can uh, add the wine to the water to kill uh, harmful germs. And so 
Timothy must obviously have just been drinking the water and it's giving an upset stomach. And so he's saying, drink a little bit of wine for your health. So Jeremy, since you drew, you brew beer, do you think it's would be applicable to say, drink a little bit of beer with this for your stomach? Uh, I do know in the Middle Ages and Renaissance era that that was... Uh, a way that they purified beer because, again, like you were saying about the Mediterranean world, you could have uh, infections in the water and, and uh, bad water, and, and the way that you would get rid of that was by brewing it. So uh, I, I suppose, yeah, alcohol in anything would um, certainly disinfect it to a certain degree, um, but uh, I, I can't really use this as a justification for my hobby. Okay. Well, something that just popped in my head is... You know, here as Christians, as Lutheran Christians, it is okay for us to to have alcohol. You're not overindulge in alcohol, but we're not with those other church bodies. And like we said before, I'm not going to name the church bodies, but there are those churches and church bodies that say all drinking is sinful. And I remember when I was installed at the Congregation of Faith in Radcliffe, Kentucky, uh, the congregation threw a party. Well, I threw a party. It was at my house. And we're sitting in my garage, and I I handed out beers to people. And I handed one to Pat, and he didn't take one at first. And then he, then he did take one. And I didn't really think anything of it until Pat was in my adult confirmation class. And after getting to know me several weeks in, he said, Pastor, I have a confession to make. When I was at your party and you handed me a beer, I thought you were testing me. But then when I saw you had a beer in your hands, I, he said, I, I said to myself, this is going to be cool to be a Lutheran. <laughs> so I guess it's cool to be a Lutheran because we're okay with having a little bit of wine and beer and so forth. Sure. So next week, we'll spend some more time in Paul's pastoral epistles. We're going to go through 1 Timothy chapter 6 and then the three chapters of Titus. And the following week, we'll come back with the four chapters of 2 Timothy. So, Jeremy, do you know what movie is coming out in the middle of, of, of November? Is it something related to The Flash? No. No, we're done with Flash. That was last. Oh, okay. Uh, it, Ghostbusters. Okay. They're having a, a sequel of sorts. So this is Pastor Zarling with Egon Spengler with his trusty po- proton pack. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs> 